Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to consider verses 1 through 24. So Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, we're going to read down to the end of verse 24 with the reminder that this is the very word of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned And reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, 
and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And before we begin to consider this passage together, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the beauty of the day that you have given us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for all that you are, which you have communicated to us through the things that you have made, through your word, through your spirit, and through your son. And Lord, we have been delighted to sing praises to you this morning. And we have been delighted to hear of the work that you have been doing uh, on the university campuses in Montreal. We are delighted to hear of people who are coming to know you through your son, Jesus, of believers who are growing stronger in their faith and in their walk with you. And Father, we, we plead with you that you will raise up more workers in all of those places. Lord, the harvest really is plentiful, and you know so much more than we do about uh, the hearts of people who are coming to our country to learn uh, in these university institutions. You know about their background. You know everything about them that there is to know, and so you, more than us, fully understand their need of your son, Jesus. And so we pray that you will pour out your spirit, that you will work in our midst, Lord, that you will raise up a generation of workers in the harvest field knowing and trusting in the fact that you are the Lord of the harvest. Uh, This is your great work in this world. And Father, I pray that you'll give us eyes to see the needs around us uh, in in this congregation, uh, the needs in this city, uh, the needs in our country. Uh, Lord, also give us a vision for all of the world because it is is not sufficient for Jesus to, Uh, to only be known and praised by a few. We desire to see him known and praised by all. And we pray that you will give us of your spirit and gifts to further the message of the kingdom uh, all around the world. Lord, we pray uh, now for uh, Ken and for his family. Lord, we pray that you will give him uh, a faith-filled passage across the Jordan. Uh, We pray that you will gather him uh, peaceably and peacefully uh, to yourself. We thank you that his faith is in Jesus. We thank you that the legacy of his faith uh, lives on in his family. And Father, we pray that even through the waters of death, we pray that your name will be honored and that great comfort will be found in your love and in the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray now that you will open your word to us. Open our minds to understand it. Open our hearts to receive it. And I pray that you will help us to respond to it as we ought. For we ask it in the name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke. And today is a big day. Double digits in the chapter numbers. All the way through the first nine chapters. Maybe you thought we'd never get there. Uh, But here we are, uh, now in Luke chapter 10, uh, continuing to move on. And this is very interesting, actually. We're trying to show a little bit about how the gospel is constructed, how the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to create a careful ordering uh, of his narrative, but also how 
the gospel really develops. It builds on itself. So last week when we were looking at the second half of chapter 9, uh, we were talking about some of the failures of the disciples. Remember, Jesus uh, was finally identified by Peter as being the Messiah, the Christ, and uh, Jesus has to say to them, don't tell anyone about me, because when Jesus starts telling them what Messiahship means, suffering, rejection, and death, none of the disciples understand it. And so Jesus needs to tell them, I am a Messiah who is going to suffer and be rejected and die. And because you are followers of a Messiah who suffers and dies, you yourself will suffer. In fact, every day you need to pick up your cross and come after me. There is no other way to be a disciple than to be willing to carry your cross daily as you follow me. But unless you think that the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus diminishes his glory, the very next thing that is recorded is the transfiguration where the glory of Jesus Christ, veiled in his incarnate state, is allowed to shine forth. Not where God adds glory to Jesus, but where his intrinsic glory is revealed to his disciples. And there are all kinds of parallels with uh, Moses and the Sinai revelation that you find now with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And just like when Moses comes off Sinai and finds chaos in the camp, failure of faith uh, with the golden calf incident, Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration and finds that his disciples are completely unhinged in the face of of a boy who's possessed by a demon and they have tried to drive out the demon and they cannot even though at the beginning of luke chapter 9 jesus gave them authority to drive out demons this is just an unacceptable failure of faith in the disciples and then we find the disciples uh, arguing about which one of them is the greatest we find that the disciples have stopped someone who was successfully driving out demons in the name of jesus you know john comes he says oh master jesus we saw someone casting out demons in your name but he wasn't part of our inner circle he wasn't part of our little group so we told him to stop and then they're surprised when jesus doesn't think that was the right thing to do They are going through Samaria, and the Samaritans don't want Jesus and the Jews passing through. And so the disciples say, hey, let's call down fire from heaven and destroy these guys. And we're not told what Jesus said, but Jesus rebuked them and carries on. And then chapter 9 ends with these three incidences of potential disciples. Someone coming along saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, you know what, the road is hard. I don't even have a place to stay. Someone else comes along and says, I'll follow you, but I have family commitments. I need to bury my father. And Jesus says, no, if you are going to follow me, I am your number one priority. Nothing else can eclipse my position in your life. And then someone else comes and says, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you. But first I need to go back and sort of tidy things up with the family. And Jesus says, no, you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. In other words, you know, it's a difficult road. It's your number one priority and there's no turning back. These are strong claims on our lives, which can only be sort of justified if Jesus really is something very, very special. So now, though, you've just gone through several sections where the disciples have been shown again and again and again to misunderstand Jesus, to try to correct Jesus, to fail to understand Jesus, and to want to obliterate and destroy everyone who is not part of their inner group. And so when you hit chapter 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him 
to every town and place where he was about to go, you almost have to swallow and say, really? (laughs) Jesus, I'm going to trust you on this one. But as I've been tracking through your disciples up until now, the picture hasn't been very positive. Are you sure these are the group that you want to send forward? You want these to be your messengers. You want these to be your representatives. You want these people to prepare the way for you. Now, now I don't want to be like Peter and say, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But I'm almost feeling a little bit nervous. Maybe there's a wiser plan. Maybe there's someone else. Maybe there's a different option. But Jesus, as we've said even last week through that text, one of the glorious things about the failure of the disciples isn't that they fail, but the gracious, patient response of Jesus. He doesn't just write them off. He keeps working with them. He keeps giving them jobs to do. Not because they'll do it perfectly, but because they're growing. Right? And one of the things that we see in this section, Luke 10, 1 through 24, is there actually is growth in the disciples. And it's only growth because they were given another chance. They kept being given jobs to do in the kingdom. And that should give us great encouragement and great comfort. We can serve God not because we are able to do it, not because we are perfectly equipped to do it, but because Jesus is so great in his strength, the spirit is so powerful with the gifts that he gives, and the Lord's heart is so patient and kind that he will continue to work with us and help us along after everyone else would have given up. And so that's our only hope. It's not that we can ever sort of get to a place where now I'm making the grade in terms of what Jesus deserves. We'll never be able to minister the way Jesus deserves to be ministered uh, to or in in his name. It's because of his love and mercy and grace and patience. He continues to bless us and give us tasks to do. But But what he begins by saying is very interesting. Uh, a few weeks ago, a bit of a month ago, uh, I had the privilege of teaching uh, a group of German missionaries in Toronto uh, a course on the Gospel of Luke. It was a one-week intensive, sort of morning to night. I mean, you think it's difficult to listen to me for 30 minutes. You know, they had to listen to me from like 8 in the morning till 4 o'clock at night. Uh, we're just going through Luke, you know, in, in the entire week. And so these are, these are people who are training to be missionaries. They have a few years in Germany uh, to be trained, and part of it is coming to Toronto because it's so multicultural that uh, the German mission sends them to Toronto for nine months to be involved in multicultural urban ministry. And these are keen young people. The youngest was 19, oldest was 24, uh, and they're, they're looking to do full-time vocational missions. Excited, energetic, passionate Great group. It was so reinvigorating for me. And we were talking about going out. And here are people who are responding to the call to give all of their life to cross-cultural missions. And so they're part of the workers who are going. But as we were discussing this passage, one of the things that we were talking about was this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is not a text for the people who aren't going. You can't say, well, Lord, I'm busy doing ministry, so I don't need to ask for more ministers to be raised up. Lord, I'm going out into the harvest field, so I don't need to be one of those people left behind praying. These aren't people who are left behind. 
Jesus is sending them out. It's the people who are being sent out who are saying, listen, there's more to do than you can ever do. And, and man, you're going to realize that, you know, when you're out in the real world, when you're out on campus, when you're out overseas, you know, when you're going from town to town, when you're in the church, you will realize there is more to do than one individual can ever accomplish. And so you go and you work, but you realize that if you want to reach the world for Jesus, the greatest contribution to missions that you can make is to ask him to send out more people. Because there will always be more to do. And so this is something that we need to be uh, very consistently dedicated to here at this church. You know, we, we talk about missions. We talk about our missions budget. You know, we, we talk about all the things that we want to do. But how much time do we spend praying, Lord, we need more missionaries. Lord, we need more workers. We need more people who will go and represent the name of Jesus Christ in Canada, in Guelph, and all over the world. That's the first thing Jesus tells them about missions. That's the first thing he tells them when he's sending them out. Isn't These are the things that you do. It's these are the people you pray for. That's how we will reach the world. And you can pray because he is the Lord of the harvest. This is his world. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, when he gives what we refer to as the Great Commission, it's it's grounded in the statement that Jesus makes, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, causal connection, therefore go. Why do we go? We go because Jesus has all authority. There isn't one heart, there isn't one square inch of space in the universe where Jesus does not have authority. And in that sense, there is no such thing as a closed country. Uh, there is no place where Jesus doesn't have the right to be known and where the gospel doesn't have the right to be proclaimed because all authority is given to Jesus Christ. And so when we ask the Lord of the harvest, and this is a pretty anemic translation, uh, the word often is, is sorry, we can translate it as implore or entreat. It's not just sort of casually asking, it's begging the Lord. You are the Lord of the harvest. Send out more. The harvest is ready. We are too small. We are too weak. We're just a drop in the bucket. Lord, send out more. And the only reason you can implore the Lord that way is if you're actually captivated by the condition of the lost, but even more so if you're captivated by the glory that Jesus Christ deserves. So that we go out because the Lord Jesus Christ deserves to be honored. He deserves to be glorified. He deserves to have people who worship him, serve him, and live their lives for him. And in some ways, it's it's the dishonor of Jesus that compels us to want to see the world one for him. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. So you, you also can't think, well, I, I, my job is just to pray. I just get to pray that workers will go. And then I'll feel good that I did that, and I'll be able to sit back. You know, it's you pray and you go. We, this is a job that we all have to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, that's not the image you want to hear. 
that's that's not the point of analogy that you want. You know, you want you want go. I am sending you out like a superhero amongst weak people, or or something. Or we can even flip it. How about we get to be the wolves and they get to be the sheep? It's, no, it's you are going out and you are defenseless and you are vulnerable. You are in danger. You cannot accomplish this on your own. If you go out in your own strength, in your own wisdom, you will be torn apart before you can even, you know, say bah. You know, you are done. But it's this vulnerability, that's, it's this helplessness that says, you know, Lord, I can't look to myself. I have to look for you. If you're going to send me out, you need to take care of me. You need to protect me. You need to give me the words to say. You need to work in me to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which will allow me to be safe in this very dark world and to actually testify to your light. Lord, I'm going out unequipped. The only thing that protects a sheep from a wolf is a shepherd. So Lord, I'm going out. I need a shepherd. I need you to be my good shepherd every step of the way. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. We've talked about some of these issues a little bit earlier in another uh, chapter in Luke, but the idea here is that you're being sent out, you're traveling light. You're being sent out cast in total dependence on the generosity of other people as the Lord moves and works in their heart to provide you with what you need. You're not going out self-sufficient. You're not going out sort of independently wealthy. You're going out counting on the providential provision of God for your daily bread. Do not greet anyone on the road. To us, sounds you know possibly a little bit rude, uh, but the reality is, I, I, I have a good friend who was a missionary in North Africa, and he would tell me. uh, it takes forever to buy anything in the market because you go and like all you want to do you you know you just you just want to buy a pineapple or whatever it is and so you go up and it's a small village everyone knows you so the first thing is i have to say so how are your parents are your parents well I just want a pineapple. <laughs> can we just, can we skip this conversation? Uh, so how is your wife? You know, great. I want a pineapple. You know, and he's like, but you have to, then you have to reciprocate it. It's, and it's, it's very relational based. And so the, the idea here is that you don't have time to have long drawn out conversations with people about things that aren't immediately relevant. Okay. So, and then remember, there's a specific context here with Jesus driving out or sending out these disciples. But the idea is, listen, you need to go. You need to tell people that I am here. You need to tell people about the kingdom of God. You need to tell people about the king. You need to go out with an urgency that doesn't allow for lots and lots and lots of useless small talk. We got to get serious about the message. Now, that is music to the ears of an introvert like me. All right, no more small talk. You know, we'll talk about something serious or nothing at all. You know, there's an urgency here. Now, of course, in our long-standing relationships that we're cultivating, there's a different context, so I can't quite twist the word that way. Although I'm sorely tempted. You know? No, we need to we need to build relationships, but we need to understand, guys. There is a priority. People need to actually hear the gospel. They need to actually hear it. And some people are saying, oh, I'm building relationships. I'll share the gospel. I'm just building relationships, waiting for God to open the door. Man, and you've been there, and you've known that person. You've been working with them for five years, for ten years, for twenty years. You know, it just hasn't been the right time yet. You know, no, no, probably God has opened the door. You just, you just haven't done anything about it. There is an urgency people need to hear about Jesus. 
When you go into a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. You are to accept hospitality, to be cared for, not to upgrade, you know, not to take the better offer down the road. You stay with the person that you're with. You don't outstay your welcome, so that keeps you moving on from town to town as well. The idea here is, is really this is a message of peace. And where people will receive it, where there is harmony, then the peace of God rests upon them. But we can't make people receive the gospel. And so if they harden their heart, if they reject it, then it's like that blessing of peace. There's nothing magical about us. You know, we can't just give people peace. If they reject the Lord, the peace returns. It doesn't stay. Nothing magical at all. When you enter a town and are welcome to eat what is offered to you. Now, there's lots of, in terms of missions, there's all kinds of practical wisdom in here, which we won't uh, take the time to go through. But heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is the only thing they're told to say. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Because Jesus has come. This is the message of John the Baptist and Jesus early on. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God. Yes, consummated in a physical kingdom in the new heavens and new earth, where all of reality is sort of coextensive with the kingdom of the Lord. But more to the point here, it's the rule and reign of God is being seen and enacted in the world. Why? How has the kingdom come near? The kingdom has come near because the king has come near. The king is in the world. The son of God incarnate is here. They're saying, you need to know that. You need to base your life on the appearance of the king and your response to him. That's the heart of the message. Jesus Christ, the king, has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, this is the response that when, when Jews, when Orthodox Jews would come back uh, into Israel from traveling outside of the boundaries of Israel, they would symbolically shake off the dust from their feet. Uh, not even bringing back the, the defiling pagan dust of the other lands into Israel. But these are towns in Israel. And so what the Lord is saying is that if they reject me, if they reject your message about me, then they're no better off than those pagan nations around us that we completely repudiate and think are godless. See, the, the key is Jesus. But again, this is something which should give us great comfort, is that the response of people is actually irrelevant to the reality of the reign of God. So we announce to people, the kingdom of God has come near. And there are people who reject that, but we say, Jesus says, you say to them, be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. In other words, Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords, whether I acknowledge that or not. He is the Lord. He is reigning even now at the Father's right hand, whether you know him or not. He is objectively Lord. He is objectively the king. It doesn't matter if if I don't believe that Queen Elizabeth II is the queen of England. It doesn't matter if I believe that or not. She is. It doesn't matter what any of us think about Jesus. He is the king. This is why in the book of Philippians, we are told that 
at some point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single person who's ever lived will acknowledge that, either with great joy or as someone whose rebellion has finally been shown to have ended in defeat. But either way, we will, every one of us, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then Jesus teaches very strongly that to reject him is actually to sin against God in a greater way than some of these cities that he mentions, Sodom and Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament, cities that are proverbial for wickedness, even to this day. Cities that were destroyed, obliterated by the Lord through supernatural means, also through the raising up of armies, depending on which city you're looking at. But if it is worse for the towns that reject the gospel of Jesus on the day of judgment, which Jesus says it is, than it is for Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, it can only be because rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ is worse than anything that they did in the past, which tells you an awful lot about the greatness of Jesus. If to reject the proclamation of Jesus is worse than what Sodom was involved in, worse than what Tyre and Sidon were involved in, then it gives you a lens to understand how great Jesus must be. This is sort of the negative side of what we saw positively when Jesus can say of John the Baptist, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Why? Because John the Baptist was the one who said, there's the Messiah. Everyone else up until John had predicted the Messiah, had pointed forward to the Messiah. John the Baptist himself says, that's the guy. That's the Messiah. And precisely because of that, Jesus says, he is the greatest person who has ever lived. Up until now, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Why? Because John the Baptist is beheaded before Jesus goes to the cross and is raised to life and before Pentecost. And so for us, every single person who knows that Jesus dies on the cross and is raised to life, we know Jesus better than John the Baptist did. And so we are greater than him because greatness revolves around your relationship and knowledge of Jesus. Nothing else. And so that's the positive side. Knowing about Jesus, there's nothing greater. But that means rejecting Jesus is the worst thing you can do. Far greater than the sexual perversion that characterized Sodom. Turning your back on the gospel of Jesus Christ, far greater evil in the sight of God than the ruthless idolatry and violence of Tyre and Sidon. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. In other words, it's not just a message you reject. If if you reject the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you reject Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. There, there are no caveats to that. There, there are no exceptions. There are no footnotes. There are no asterisks. Uh, it's you reject the message of the gospel. You reject God. But notice this, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, this is important 
Because at the end of chapter 9, we've seen all the failure of the disciples, and at the end of chapter 9, discipleship seems really, really, really hard, right? Who wants to sign up for this? You know, it's a hard road. It's your number one priority. There's no turning back. It sounds difficult. It sounds hard. It sounds harsh. Who wants it? But the ones who go out come back with joy. Not because the road was easy. Not because things were posh and luxurious. But they come back because they have seen spiritual victory. And I love this. And the only thing they say is, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, why are they so excited about that? They're so excited about that because that's precisely what they didn't do in the end of, at the end of chapter 9. This was their area of failure. Lord, I brought my boy to your disciples with the demon. They could not cast him out. And so they come back and say, Lord, we can do it now. Lord, there's growth. Lord, there's a change. And it is exciting. And there's nothing more exciting than when the Lord gives you, you know, new opportunity or new victory in terms of your walk with him or in terms of ministry. It is exciting. And so they should be filled with joy. But... Jesus says to them something very interesting. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I think you know, this can be taken probably in three ways that really aren't mutually exclusive. The one would be that Jesus has already seen Satan in his rebellion cast out of heaven. So he knows that Satan uh, is sort of impotent in the face of the power of God. Or that sort of prophetically, in terms of revelation, Jesus has, has perceived the defeat of the kingdom of Satan as the message of the kingdom has been proclaimed through his disciples. He said, I know there's been victory. But also, he knows that in the end, Satan will be totally destroyed on the day of judgment. I have seen Satan fall. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. I've given you great power and protection. However... Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Really? Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. But Lord, that's what I that's what I was failing at. This is a big deal for me. Lord, this is this is power. No, don't guys, don't don't get excited about that. Well, if you can't get excited about the demons submitting to you, what can you get excited about? This is a big deal. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now listen, we should be excited. We should be filled with joy when we see the victories of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the world. John writes as an old man, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Meaning, their spiritual life, it, there's nothing better for him than to see those victories and that growth. But, it is always a danger for us that we will begin to love the gifts that God gives us rather than the God who gave them to us. And it is always a danger for us that we will love the spiritual power and using our gifts, that we will love ministry opportunities and that that excitement of ministry will begin to eclipse our focus on God. 
And so here, Jesus almost says, listen, yeah, you've just had a great victory. Yes, this is really, really exciting. And it is exciting, but be careful or else you will begin to love the service and the ministry more than me. Or at least you will begin to love sort of your experience of power or worship or whatever it is in a way which which starts to impede your singular focus on me. So be very careful. Because if you begin to love ministry in a certain way, you can make an idol of it very quickly. You can. You can, you can make an idol of preaching or teaching. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, uh, around the time of the Second World War in England, said that, he's drawing a sort of older language, that there is no more romantic place than behind the pulpit. It just meaning in terms of like sort of the older romanticism of aesthetics and beauty, passion and power and truth. You know, maybe if, if, if you've preached, maybe you know a little bit about what that's like. You know, there is a certain joy, a certain passion that comes from serving the Lord in the way he's called you to do it, whatever it is. But you can begin to love the feeling of leading people in music. And you begin to fall in love with that rather than falling in love with the Savior. Uh, You can begin to love truth and forget that you love the God of truth more. And so he says, listen, get back to basics. Get back to basics. Yes, you're seeing some ministry success, but that's not the best thing. The best thing is the basic thing. Your name is written in heaven. You never get over the gospel. You never get over Jesus. You always track back the joy and the service and everything God has done and is doing in your life. All of the growth, all of the new victory, all of the new excitement. You say, thank you, Lord, for the trajectory. Thank you, Lord, for it. But you always track it back. And why am I able to do this? I'm able to do this because of the greatest reality of all. Jesus loves me. Carl Barth uh, Probably, the, without any doubt, the most influential theologian of the last century. Not all for good, but the most influential theologian. At the end of his life, he was asked, what's, what's the greatest theological insight that you have? Well, this huge, influential, 14-volume uh, set of theology books called Church Dogmatics. Right? Uh, fed it and celebrated all over the world. It's the greatest thing. The greatest theological insight that I have is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he was right. That's the greatest theological insight there is. That's the greatest reality that there is. Jesus Christ is a savior of sinners. Jesus Christ has died on the cross to shed his blood to pay for the sins of people like you and like me. And then he gives us a job to do, but the job is predicated on the salvation. There is nothing greater than having your name written in heaven. There is nothing greater than the joy of salvation. And as much as we can rejoice, Lord, thank you for the victory. When's the last time we just we just sat or, or we kneeled or we, we leapt and we said, Lord, thank you. My name is written in heaven. My sins have been taken away. Your blood has paid the your blood has cleansed me. You have paid the penalty for my sin. You have renewed me. Your spirit has given me a new heart and new birth, and I will be with you in glory forever. 
You can keep your exorcisms, as exotic and as interesting as that might be. I'll take my name written in heaven. And that's what every single Christian has in common. Because the truth is, too, ministry will be taken away from us if we just live long enough. Ministry will shift. You can, Ken and his family, Ken can testify to Jesus even as he goes through the last days of his life dying. And he has. But yesterday I spent some time with a very good friend who's 80. He's been a pastor for years and who's uh, done lots of overseas short-term missions trips. And we're talking about an opportunity that I have uh, maybe next spring to go and teach in a college in Malawi, a place that he's been many times. Saying, oh, that'd be great. Would you like to come? And I'd love to, but I don't know if I can. Because he doesn't know if he can physically handle the flight. Doesn't know if he can physically handle the conditions. You see, if you love ministry, if if ministry really is your focus, there comes a time when when it's taken away. There comes a time, and listen, I'm 37. I don't know what's going on, but I am getting dumber and dumber as time goes on. I can't concentrate. I can't retain any information. Like, I used to be able to study for periods of time. Now, like, I study for, like, five minutes, and I'm like, I don't know. Let's just look around. Like, I just have no power of concentration or memory retention. And so I realized there's going to come a time when my when my mind won't be able to do this. I, I And, man, I better love Jesus more than I love being a pastor. And, and I better love my, the, the fact that my name is written in heaven more than I love preaching. Because this will be taken away. This will end. And maybe some of you think, like, sooner the better, you know? Like, this is going to end. But Jesus is forever. Jesus is forever. And that's where my joy is. And Jesus also, full of joy, exalting, overflowing with joy through the Spirit, says, Father, I praise you for this is what you have done. You haven't, you haven't taken the important people, the wise people, the rich people, the smart people. You've taken little children and you have shown yourself to them through me because you can only know them through me. And then Jesus says to his disciples, something he would say to you, if you know Jesus, these words really are for you. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. David and Isaiah and Moses and Elijah, what they got in terms of revelation isn't even as good as what you have with the completed canon of Scripture and the given Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They longed to see what you see. In 1 Peter, we're told that even the angels long to look into the salvation that we share. They long to know what is it like To be a rebellious creature redeemed by the blood of Jesus. What is it like to live like that? And and then there sort of unfolds it. All you can imagine is that if you were actually that wicked and sinful and the second person in the Trinity became a man to die for you, you must live all of your life every moment in just unspeakable joy. Because you couldn't get over that. How could you ever get over that? What Jesus has done for you. We are the most privileged people who have ever lived in the history of the world. And there are lots and lots and lots of people whose names, uh, who, who do not know the name of Jesus. 
who cannot say right now, yes, I, I know my salvation is secure. I know the Father through the Son. And so this is the motive for us to go. The great joy we have in our salvation. And the fact that there are people who are unsaved, who don't know the Lord. And so we go, we rejoice, we serve, and we pray, Lord, send more workers so that more people can be filled with the joy that is only found in knowing that your name is written in heaven. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in a song of response to worship and praise the Lord.